Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic Narrated, where we bring you a selection of articles from our print issues read aloud by their authors. In this episode, Lisa Hilton reads her piece, How Britain Really Eats, where she relays how she enjoys a Thai feast that shows that fiery and exotic has now become mainstream. Henry Hill says a new breed of muscular unionists is seeking to reverse the damage done by devolution as he narrates his feature, Putting Muscle Behind the Union. And our secret author says we need heavyweights to separate good from bad in this month's column, Bring Back the Pandendrums. So now, Lisa Hilton reads her eating out column, How Britain Really Eats. By the time this review is published, today's furore over Boris Johnson's Build Back Batter video will undoubtedly have been replaced by another, the Prime Minister's stock of crass behaviours being considerably more varied than his slogans. Admittedly, only a southern prat eats fish and chips with a fork, but it's not as though the Tories have the exclusive on attempts to politicise certain foodstuffs to prove that they are down with the average voter. Since the hagiographic status of fish and chips is not remotely related to what the majority of British people regularly eat, Tesco's top 20 best-selling ready meals include chicken tikka masala, spaghetti carbonara, chicken korma, spaghetti bolognese, lasagna, beef stroganoff and king corn chilli noodles, could it be that Mr Johnson is signalling something more subtle with his choice of a pole-friendly dinner? Historically, fish and chips combines a multitude of ethnic and congregational elements. Potatoes were introduced in the 16th century from the Americas, and the technique of frying them as chips perfected in Mr Johnson's childhood home, Belgium. Fried fish, meanwhile, has been traced to the polycultural Moorish kingdom of Al-Andalus on the Iberian Peninsula, where Muslims and Christians lived alongside a significant Sephardic Jewish population. Since cooking was prohibited on the Jewish Sabbath, the technique of frying fish in matzo batter preserved it to be eaten cold, and the method was popularised throughout Europe by the Jewish diaspora, which followed the Alhambra Edict of 1492. By the 18th century, the art of cooking made plain and simple was referring to, quote, the Jewish manner of preserving all sorts of fish, end quote. And the recipe was appreciated by Thomas Jefferson, as well as Victorian England's most influential chef, the French-born Alexis Soyer. London's first fish and chip shop was supposedly opened by an Eastern European immigrant, Joseph Malin, in 1860. Given that none of this information is novel, perhaps it's unfair to suggest that Build Back Batter is a tone-deaf attempt to arrogate an outdated national dish to a flagging political cause. Might not Mr Johnson's choice of cod and chips be an indication of his hopes that Britain's complex traditions of immigrant innovation will continue to flourish? Yeah, me neither. It's not the first time that fish and chips have been yoked to the back of the Brexit bus. In 2019, Steve Pickering of Brunel University produced a fascinating study which indicated that the proportion of fish and chip shops in a given constituency was a strong indicator of pro-Brexit votes. Whilst not as robust a variable as tertiary education, a greater proportion of chippies did produce a higher Brexit share. I'd be intrigued to know what Dr Pickering could do with the demographic implications of Thai food, particularly the roaring success that is the 38 branches and counting giggling squid chain. 
Giggling Squid was founded in 2002 by Prani Lorillard, back when lime leaves were exotic and Thai cooking on the high street basically meant red or green curry. She has since broken with the franchise to found Lime Squeezy, which aims to market Giggling Squid's greatest hits in a swifter format to a younger crowd. Giggling Squid, meanwhile, has spread its tasteful tentacles over much of England, in towns which can be described as, well, nice. Bath is nice, and Guildford, Farnham and Windsor, and Kingston-upon-Thames are nice, as are Henley and Hove. The decor is also very nice, neither faux-industrial nor faux-rustic, rather whimsical, feminine and charming, with lots of silk flowers, fresh bright colours, and the pistachio leather bonquettes that looked so modern and daring when Rowley leaded them at Le Café Anglais in 2008. On a mean day, I'd say it's like having dinner in the Instagram booth at a provincial wedding, but Giggling Squid is too nice to provoke meanness. The food is considerably better than nice. My daughter is obsessed with the sticky chicken, so we had that along with another top seller, the salt and pepper squid. Golden money bags stuffed with chicken, herbs and fresh chilli sauce were as crispy and fragrant as I've ever tasted, while the mooping pork skewers were charred outside, daringly pink and juicy within, set off with a mouth-puckering tamarind sauce. Beetle beef with sweet chilli and peanut comes on sugarcane skewers to bite down and release a shock of sweetness over the heat and mushroom larb introduce a denser note of rich spicing, ginger and mint setting off its bosky base. Giggling squid will spice your curry to order, so I tried a suitably steamy jungle curry with beef, with chewy Thai roti to scoop up the fiery sauce. Pak choy and tender stem broccoli tasted like greens, but people only ever order those to feel virtuous anyway, whilst coconut rice was sweetly soothing without being overly unctuous. Drinks are as pretty and fragrant as the food and decor. Spins on cosmopolitan and Bellini cocktails, a short list of nicely chosen reds and plenty of sprightly whites. German-style wines are particularly good with Thai spicing, so we opted for Kung Fu Girl Riesling, Rhine via Washington State. Apart from its niceness, Giggling Squid might well have something to say about how contemporary Britain eats or aspires to eat, that has nothing to do with the hackneyed symbolism that currently passes for the politics of food. Next, Henry Hill on putting muscle behind the union. New Labour's 1997 manifesto made the nation a simple promise. A sovereign Westminster Parliament will devolve power to Scotland and Wales. The union will be strengthened and the threat of separatism removed. Two decades on, that pledge lies in ruins. The United Kingdom was taken to the brink of dissolution in 2014. The Scottish National Party have displaced Labour as the party of government in Edinburgh, and Welsh Labour's commitment to the union is increasingly couched in mercenary terms. In the two decades since the advent of the new legislatures, devolutionary orthodoxy has presented unionism with only losing moves. The failure of each tranche of extra powers to satiate the separatists could only mean that even more powers are required. Victory is being redefined in increasingly abject terms that would leave the UK a less coherent entity than the European Union. Given all that, an eventual unionist backlash was inevitable. And in the white heat of the last parliament, the cross-party public consensus on New Labour's constitutional legacy started to break down. When Boris Johnson reportedly told a group of Conservative MPs that devolution had been a disaster in Scotland, he merely broke an amirta. Many others, both Tory and Labour, feel the same. The new approach, haphazardly pursued by this government, has been dubbed muscular unionism. As with so many labels in British politics, it was coined by its opponents. 
Its advocates do not yet have a word for themselves. This is not a coherent movement with a codified doctrine. But it is an emerging presence within the Conservative Party. One can trace its outlines in the new 80-strong group of unionist backbenchers and the revival of the grassroots Friends of the Union. In the passage of the totemic UK Internal Market Act, UKEMA, and the internecine battles over the subsidy control bill, in the rise and fall of advisers, and the uncertain position of Michael Gove. Whatever you call it, muscular unionism asks hard questions both about whether orthodox devolutionary strategy can save the union and what exactly saving the union really means. It has the potential, at least, to turn the constitution into a clear point of cleavage between Labour and the Tories. But it started as something much less ambitious, an attempt to work out what to do with all the powers repatriated to Britain as we left the European Union. The foundations for Ukema and all that follow from it, were laid in the battle over what was then Clause 11 of the EU Withdrawal Bill. The two sides were as follows. On one was ranged those who argued that simply because New Labour had devolved whole areas of policy, any ex-EU powers within those areas ought to be automatically devolved as well. On the other were those who argued that their predecessors had only intended to devolve powers that were within Westminster's ambit at the time devolution took place. Those powers which had been pulled upwards in Brussels had been sent that way for a reason. They needed to be harmonised to make a single market work. The government's logic was sound. The SNP could use even trivial powers to undermine the British common market, give them control of food labelling, for example, and they could institute a tiny change that would nonetheless require manufacturers to have separate production lines for Scottish goods. But after Theresa May's government gelded itself at the 2017 election, the battle was lost. The SNP position won the support not just of their usual handmaidens on the labour benches, but a small yet critical band of Scottish Conservatives brandishing hazy slogans about the spirit of devolution. A time bomb was laid beneath the UK's internal market. This defeat made Ukema necessary. Although much of the debate was overshadowed by Brandon Lewis's comments about international law with regards to Northern Ireland, the revolutionary scope of the Act extended far beyond any controversy over the protocol. Not only did it reassert Westminster's right to maintain and police the UK's internal market as the unilateral authority, it also empowered ministers to spend additional money directly in areas of devolved competence. For the first time, the British government can once again start to play a positive, proactive and visible role in governing the entire country. This is a dramatic and long overdue break with the outdated more powers consensus and was prompted by those two crucial questions. Can devolution save the union? And what does saving the union mean? To many devolutionaries, the essential rightness of their proposition seems more an article of faith than a falsifiable thesis. Tony Blair himself, in a recent interview with ITV, asserted, if the Labour Party hadn't implemented its manifesto commitment to do devolution in 1997, the union would already be in tatters. As we cannot glimpse the other timeline, nobody can disprove this. Merely choose to believe it, and no matter how bad things get, they would otherwise have been worse. Even if your theory has no predictive power, and your big promises go entirely unfulfilled, you're still right. Forced to reason both from the observable reality that their strategy isn't working, and the ideological necessity that it is nonetheless the right strategy, devolutionary unionists can only conclude that the proper remedy is an even stronger dose of the medicine that is killing their patient. Although in an attempt to slip it past the regulator, they sometimes rebrand it as federalism. Diva skeptic unionists, on the other hand, subscribe to Tam Diel's mantra that all the current problems with devolution were predictable and predicted, foreseeable and foreseen. 
they anticipate that hollowing out the United Kingdom will weaken it, and lo and behold, the Union grows weaker the hollower it becomes. Under the all-or-nothing model instituted by New Labour, the British state is prevented from playing any positive role in most policy areas, such as health and education, that matter most to many voters. Shorn of the ability to act, the best Westminster can do is hand over more money, thus redefining better together in increasingly narrow and pecuniary terms. Worse, the system aligns the interests of the entire Democrat class, whether openly separatist or nominally pro-UK, against those of the Union. For it is a rare politician who will decline the opportunity to blame the shortcomings of their administration on a malign outside force, and conveniently situate the remedy in yet more power, pay and prestige for themselves. This analysis does not necessarily lead to a wish to abolish the Scottish or Welsh parliaments, although some certainly do wish that. Instead, if it means anything, muscular unionism is the belief that the centrifugal forces unleashed by devolution must be balanced by a centripetal role for our shared parliament and the British state. At minimum, this means asserting Westminster's right and duty to defend the coherence of British economic and social life without being afraid to set limits on the powers and ambitions of devolved politicians where they would imperil either. This also means repudiating the suggestion, implicit in much of the debate around the fate of the XEU powers, that it is somehow illegitimate for London to exercise powers previously vested in Brussels. That unionism has been on the defensive for too long, and by empowering ministers to spend funds on almost anything, Ukema traces the outline of a more ambitious strategy. Pro-UK MPs are now looking for ways to include measures to strengthen the union in other pieces of upcoming legislation. There is also scope for Westminster to start doing more to hold devolved authorities to account for the British money they spend, most obviously by mandating the Office for National Statistics to collect uniform data on public sector performance from every part of the country, and thus frustrate the determined efforts of both the SNP and Welsh Labour to disguise their records behind non-comparable statistics. But behind these technical and practical battles lies a more fundamental one about what exactly the United Kingdom is, and thus what saving it, unionism's nominal purpose, really requires. For decades, the constitutional debate within unionism has been couched almost exclusively in terms of means. A shared goal is assumed. The question is how best to go about delivering it. But after two decades of constitutional retreat, it is increasingly impossible to ignore that there are actually competing and very different conceptions of the mission. Some advocates of the orthodox approach have started redefining victory in increasingly alarming terms. No less than a former head of the Scottish office has written that the ambit of British governance should shrink to only such wholly UK areas as the currency and national defence. Others openly debate the prospect of ending fiscal transfers. One former New Labour advisor, on a panel with me, once insisted that the union was a means, not an end. For some Scottish Conservatives, comes talk of dividing government between Scottish and Welsh self-rule and reserved shared rule. Some of their Labour counterparts go even further, floating the prospect of formally involving the Scottish government in foreign policy. In the aftermath of 2016, some Remainers, elevating tactical expediency over good sense, suggested that each of the home nations should get a veto on Brexit. What all these visions have in common is an understanding of the United Kingdom that is more or less confederal, anchored in a view which holds that Britain is not a nation or a national state. The view is best summarised in Labour's manifesto for this year's Senate election, when it offered Welsh voters the following fiction. 
We believe the UK is a voluntary association of four nations with sovereignty shared among its four democratic legislatures in Wales, England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. The sheer breadth of the coalition behind this idea can be surprising. When David Starkey wrote in a recent issue of this magazine that the United Kingdom is rather like Voltaire's Holy Roman Empire, it is neither one nor indivisible nor united, he paid perhaps unknowing tribute to the nationalist sage Tom Nairn, who ridiculed Eukania as a modern analogue to the ramshackle Habsburg Empire. Now, Austria-Hungary had, had more virtues than many modish statesmen of the era were prepared to acknowledge, and the history of the Balkans might have been considerably happier had they done so. Nonetheless, anybody who wants to understand the logic of muscular unionism, even if they reject it, must understand that it rests in part on rejecting this conception of Britain. In practical terms, it does this because of a growing recognition that a United Kingdom reorganised on such terms could not survive. By dismissing the idea of the British as a people, it fatally undermines both the practical and principled cases for the Union. At a stroke, common governments through our shared parliament, what we might call British self-rule, becomes inherently illegitimate. This much many Democrats obviously intend. But so too does the pooling and sharing of money and resources around the UK. If there is no British people, there cannot long endure a British treasury, nor British cash for it to disperse. To some, the sort of threadbare British Isles defence and diplomatic community that would result qualifies as saving the United Kingdom. To muscular unionists, it does not in part because they believe that there is such a thing as a British people and nation. Even taking the narrowest possible definition, there are millions of people across these islands who mark British only on the census or in polls. Throw in those who prefer more British than X or equally British and X, and there are many millions more. Even those whose ideology does not admit that nationhood can exist on multiple levels cannot escape the fact that the British are, at the very least, this country's fifth constituent nation. The boundaries of this nation fluctuate over time. For the past few decades, it has been in retreat, though to those who claim it never existed, we must ask, from what? But it does not follow that this retreat is historically inevitable and irreversible. Instead, to muscular unionists, there is a clear connection between the attenuation of British loyalties and the diminution of the British state. Today, it does less visible good, and there are fewer institutions giving a British shape to daily life. Nationalists have long understood this. The SNP's efforts to expunge British symbolism from Scottish life have been systematic, starting with the rebranding of the Scottish executive as the Scottish government and extending through wrapping trains in the Scotrail saltire to trying to abolish the British Transport Police. Unionists, by contrast, have for too long disdained to fight the small battles and consented to working with public opinion whilst their opponents work on public opinion. This presents unionists, especially the muscular kind, with a chicken and egg dilemma. One can't justify a strong British state without an underlying British nation, and one can't sustain the British nation without an active British state. The talk that thus presents itself is not one of tactical fixes, or the doomed quest for a grand bargain with separatism, but something closer to nation-building. To succeed, unionists will need to simultaneously rebuild British state capacity and British national loyalty. The success of each depends upon the success of the other. That is the challenge that awaits any politician who really wishes to defend the Union. The Union might be a means, but Britain is the end. And finally, David Scullion reads our secret author column, Bring Back the Panjandrums.
Thirty years ago, when the secret author was a wide-eyed young shaver cutting his teeth on the broadsheet art sections, publishers' catalogues were full of big, serious books about contemporary literature by big, serious critics keen on laying down the law. The early 1990s was boom time for this particular genre. Lorna Sage's Women in the House of Fiction, 92. Malcolm Bradbury's The Modern British Novel. DJ Taylor's After the War, the novel in England since 1945, both 1993. It was a golden age for the survey, the judgment, and above all the spectacle of the pundit who stood on top of Mount Olympus, tossing newly minted opinions over the side. Not only publishing, but literary journalism and even Arts World TV danced to this evaluative tune. Who could forget the sight of the late Eric Griffiths, Cambridge John and the skewerer of many literary reputation, writhing in his chair on BBC Two's late review as he pronounced that such and such a Booker's shortlisted novel was so deplorably bad that he could barely bring himself to mention it, but that this other one here was actually rather good. If there was no one quite like Sir Edmund Goss, 1849 to 1928, of whom it was once said that he commanded the literary pages of the Sunday Times like an archdeacon in his pulpit, six feet above the ground and defying contradiction, then the world was awash with value judgments and, a fortiori, people who felt eminently qualified to make them. There are still pundits here in 2021, there are still critics who are capable of getting quite cross in certain circumstances, and there are still one or two aged book world eminences known for dishing it out, John Carey, Terry Eagleton. But the age of the Bradbury-style Olympians, the critic whose knowledge of literature was so thoroughgoing that he, or she, could instantly fit some newly fashioned trend or tendency into the age-old patterns, has altogether passed. Much more common are the Oxbridge Dons who, while keen on an environment in which their pupils can be encouraged to discuss literature, usually shy away from anything so reductive as the idea that one book might be better or worse than another. How has all this come about? Well, two obvious explanations are A, fragmentation, and B, relativism. The secret author, if asked to write an update of Bradbury's The Modern British Novel, would simply shake his head in despair. Even 30 years ago, the idea of there being a canon of accepted works and categories was already in serious dispute, but at least one would have known where to start. Here in 2021, there are no real developments in fiction or schools of thought of the kind the critics used to bang on about, just a vast flotilla of writers paddling their own particular canoes along a series of meagre little tributaries and united only by their determination not to offend anyone or trespass on behavioural patches outside their individual experience. As for relativism, there were plenty of people three decades ago queuing up to remind us that there is no such thing as a definitive critical judgment and that one reader's opinion is as good as another. These tendencies have, naturally, been exacerbated by the rise of the Amazon reviewer and the Goodreads responder, wonderful forums for debate and analysis in the right hands, but also liable to be colonised by people without the basic information needed to rise above the approach pioneered by a column Julie Birchall once used to write, entitled Love It or Shove It. But they are also increasingly a feature of serious criticism, those 2,000-word pieces in the London Review of Books, say, which tell you everything about a particular title other than whether the reviewer liked reading it. Why do we need more critical authority? On the one hand, if literary criticism, as practised by anyone from F.R. Levis and George Orwell to James Wood and Zadie Smith, means anything, it is the sight of someone imposing their personality on the material that comes their way, of making a judgement about a piece of art and encouraging the reader to agree or dissent. 
by way of the sheer vigour of their argument. Better of John Carey, annoying the potential purchaser of a book by means of a donish swipe or two than some cautious little fence bestrider. On the other, in an age of overproduction, where there are far too many books being published, we need grand critical panjandrums to separate the good ones from the tide of rubbish on which they float. The great Victorian sage Samuel Butler was once, when looking out of a railway carriage window, puzzled by the sight of a calf eating a pile of dung. Why was the animal doing this, he wondered. The answer, he decided, was that no one had told it that dung was unwholesome. The same goes for much of this autumn's publishing schedule. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.